Well, you might remember last, um, last Sunday's gospel reading, a deacon Dick said last night, he said, you know, we're getting closer to Easter because the gospel readings get longer and longer. <laughs> and so last Sunday, uh, we had the, the story about Nicodemus who uh, came to Jesus at night, um, afraid. And uh, we have a story today about a woman who comes at noonday. Uh, there are so many different things that one can go into in today's gospel, but that would take me a long time. I did have to cut my sermon back a little bit today. But so last week, he's talking to Nicodemus, and he's talking about, Jesus is talking about being born again or born from above. That phrase in the Greek can mean both of those things. So there's a double entendre, there's a, a, a double meaning there. And, um, and, 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 the, and Nicodemus is just not getting it. He's just purely thinking in the physical realm. And Jesus is talking in the spiritual realm that being born from above or being born again is to be born of the Holy Spirit, to have the Holy Spirit come and dwell in his life. And he's just thinking about you can't go back into your mother's womb, and that's, that's as far as his thinking goes. And then today we have again these double meanings with um, Jesus talking about living water and the woman thinking he's talking about water to drink, to quench thirst, and he's actually talking about the living water, which is the Holy Spirit, again, coming that he alone can give. And then when the disciples come with food from the village, um, he's talking about having food that they don't, don't know about, and they're saying, well, who brought him food, you know, where, where there's nobody around here? And so, again, they're just thinking in the purely physical human sense. And Jesus is talking about his food, his sustenance, that which sustains him in life, is actually doing the will of God the Father. So he's, again, talking in a spiritual realm. But he's come to Samaria from Judea. He's had to leave Judea, and he's on his way back to his home base in Galilee. And um, there are a number of ways to get from Judea uh, to Galilee. And most of them will not go through Samaria. They'll go around Samaria because there is a hatred, an animosity, a violent animosity between Samaritans and Jews. In fact, any Jews daring to go through Samaria more often than not are going to be set upon, beaten up, robbed and left for dead. Such is the hatred between these two peoples. It's kind of like if today you think about, in today's day, the animosity between the Shia and the Sunni Muslims. They're at each other's throats. Or between the Palestinians and the Jews in Israel. Or back in the day when I was traveling uh, from my hometown in Hertfordshire up to London where there were no garbage cans anywhere to be found because the IRA were putting bombs in garbage bins. They were putting uh, uh, bombs in left luggage um, in the stations. And so they had to close down all of those. And because that was um, violence between Roman Catholics and Protestants. They're all brothers. 
Each of those groups that I've just said were all brothers. They came from the same line. But there's this fighting, this feudal fighting that goes on. It's the same between the Samaritans and the Jews. But Jesus goes anyway because he's on a mission. This is not random. He doesn't just randomly go into Samaria on his way to Galilee. He has something to do and somebody to meet. And it's noon, the heat of the day, and he's settled in by Jacob's well, possibly even sitting on, that's a possible translation, to sit on the well. Because these wells were huge, but so that dirt and dust didn't get in, there was a big stone over the wells and just a small hole in the middle where they'd put down not a wooden bucket normally, but a leather bucket that could be rolled up and then kind of shaken out and put down in the well. So he's in the well. So he's sitting on the edge of the well and a woman comes out to the well at noonday by herself well to that culture immediately we know something is off because then and today in that culture women go around in groups for propriety's sake And women going to fetch water at a well would go in the cool of the day in the morning. Very early in the morning, they'd go out in a group, they'd get the water, take it back to the house for the rest of the day. This woman's coming by herself in the heat of the day, which means that she's a social outcast and a bad woman. And Jesus engages her in conversation. He speaks first. See, Jesus is never bound by the barriers that we erect for ourselves. He breaks down all the barriers. He breaks down the gender barrier, the stereotypical roles for women of the day. Remember, he's talking to her. And remember the story of Martha and Mary? He takes Martha to task and says, Mary has chosen the better way. Mary has sat at the feet of a man who's a teacher. Therefore, she's taken a disciple's place, a male place because women were never discipled and Jesus said she's taken the better part. God chooses Mary Magdalene to be the person to whom he reveals himself in Jesus resurrected. In that group of disciples broader than the 12, the 400 or so who were following him around There are other women who are wealthy and who are supporting his ministry and that of the disciples. So he breaks down all of these gender barriers. He breaks down socioeconomic, geographical, racial barriers. All of those he breaks apart. Why? Because he's forming a new humanity where those don't count at all. He's forming a new family, and he has no fear about going into dangerous territory to have an encounter with his children 
who he seeks to draw into this one family in him. He knows the woman's sin before he gets into conversation with her. He knows her past. And he asks her for help. Is that amazing? I'm thirsty. Can I have some water? Because in his request for help, he's using that as a means to help her. His willingness to humbly ask for aid provides a pathway for her deepest need to be met, of which she is perhaps unaware. Jesus, however, knows exactly where her life is in need of the living water that only he offers But as so often with all of us, when the Lord starts to dig a little bit in there, we deflect, we go somewhere else, we change the conversation. Jesus has been digging a little bit at her life. And that's exactly where she needs the healing of the living waters. In her case, sexual promiscuity you've had five husbands and right now you are living in sin with a man who is not your husband see there is no hiding from the great I am whom she has encountered as a travel weary thirsty Jewish itinerant preacher so she attempts to change the subject Let's get on the subject of worship, shall we? Let's talk about um, how different forms of worship we have because we worship in Samaria and you all worship in Jerusalem. See, unknowingly, she has actually brought the conversation to the center of sin, Because the center of sin is actually idolatry. Sin comes about because our forebears, Adam and Eve, were idolatrous. They placed something other than God at the center of their lives. It actually goes to the question, who or what do we choose to worship? Who or what is the primary focus of our lives. Is it ourselves, our way or the highway? Is it power? Is it money? Is it security and worldly things? Is it a claim? What do we spend most of the time thinking about during any given day? Whatever that is, unless it's God, it's an idol. See, idolatry and God. And this surface conversation revolves around the correct place or form of worship. Now, we don't have those conversations today, right? It's like, contemporary worship is better than traditional worship. Well, Lutheran worship is better than Methodist worship, or Roman Catholic worship, or you name it. We get caught up 
in that surface conversation. Today's catchphrase, I love this, is relevant worship. Relevant to whom? Because the only person to whom worship should be relevant is to God himself. He is the focus of our worship. Jesus says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, it's a heart thing. It's not about all of that superficial stuff. Is our heart oriented to God? Is he the focus of what we do this day? Is he the sole focus of what we do this day? Because it's never about how we feel. Never, we are never the object of worship. When we come to worship thinking about what we need to get out of it, we've actually engaged in idolatry because we've put ourselves in the center once again. And at this point, worship just becomes an extension of our consumer society. And it's insidious because we live in a culture where we're continually consuming. And so that goes into all areas of our lives. And a consumer society says, I get to choose. I get to pick and choose what feels good to me. But this isn't about that. Worship is not about that. In a consumer society, we can choose whether we do or we don't. Whether we come to worship or we don't. But the object of worship is God. We're here to adore, glorify, praise, give thanks to Almighty God who has given us all things. And when he is at the center of our worship, yes, all of those other things come to us. But that's not why we come to worship. We come because that's our spiritual discipline. It's our duty at least one day a week to praise him, to glorify him, to give over our lives to him again. Archbishop William Temple wrote this, Worship is the submission of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. And all of this gathered up an adoration 
the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. I, in the middle of sin, is placing ourselves in the middle. But worship, true worship, comes when the living waters of the Holy Spirit are welling up within us. As Paul says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. But the woman at the well is not yet ready to acknowledge this itinerant Jew's authority. I know that Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ, and when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus looks at her and says, I am he. I am. That I am which God told Moses. What is your name, God? My name is I am. And Jesus says, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. And she leaves her water bucket. She's come in the heat of the day to get water. She leaves the water bucket. There are more important things to do. And she runs back to the village and to whoever will hear her, She says, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. Could he be the Messiah? And this bad woman becomes the first evangelist to the Samaritan people, the first preacher of the Christian message. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, she is known as St. Fotini, or Svetlana in the Russian Orthodox Church, a name which means equal to the apostles. As the reformer Martin Luther was wont to say, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. She had found the living waters. She had found the bread of life. And she ran to tell the others in the village about it. Do you know someone in need of the bread of life? Do you know someone in need of the living waters of eternal life? Will you share where you know to find it? Will you extend the invitation as did the Samaritan woman? Come and see for yourself. Remember, God is not put off by our past. He pays no heed to the externals. He looks deep within and knows each person's potential. He knows you. He knows your past. He knows everything about you. 
and he redeems it and makes it new. There is a reality about life in the kingdom that those who have come out of a place of sin, we all have, the brokenness of lives, he will use that redeemed brokenness to be a force for good in his kingdom work. Never question that. That our brokenness, when healed in him, will be mightily used in his kingdom. Will be used to spread the good of his kingdom. He was willing, our Lord, to trust the truth about himself with a sinful, half-breed outcast among outcasts. Who then are we to judge? whether we or others are worthy to carry his gospel message. And remember this, his grace always goes out ahead. And now, Jesus said, there has been a sowing taking place, and now the fields are ripe for harvest. You will be reapers where others have sowed. The fields are white for harvest. He has gone ahead. He has already gone into the fields. We're just to come and reap that which he has already sowed. He initiated the conversation with the woman at the well. Paul puts it this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We don't need to grapple our way to God. He comes to us. We do not need to be good to be loved by him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We do not need to be overwhelmed by our sins. He gently reveals them so that he can wash us clean with his living water. We do not need to be bound by our past. He sees our potential and breaks the bondage of past sins. We do not need to wonder whether or not we are worthy to be entrusted with his kingdom work. The Lord goes out before you. Let him show you the desert places in need of his living water. Allow his spring of life-giving water to well up inside you. The desert of your life will blossom and he will use the overflow from you to bring life to others. Amen.